15. It says here in verse 15, Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. I don't know if you were here last week, but last week we talked about um, this whole story about Jonathan and Saul. And I was telling you guys, you know, that Jonathan is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. This guy was uh, uh, just an awesome man. He loved the Lord, a man of faith, and he was really the antithesis to his father, Saul. And so here we are tonight. It's a Thursday night after Fourth of July. I'm really blessed that you guys were able to make it out tonight. But, you know, what's God going to do in your life? And why are you here, you know? Is it just a formality? Is it just what you do on Thursdays? And I would venture to say that for most of you, no. For most of you, you're hungry for God to encourage you, for God to teach you, for God to change you, for God to transform your lives, you know? And that's my prayer in my own heart, you know? Um, I I think that I want to be like Jesus, I want to be like Joseph. I want to be like Job. I want to be like Jonathan. I don't want to be like Saul. And so as we're going through this section in the scriptures, whatever you do, don't take it lightly. Don't think you're just going to go and you're going to leave and nothing's going to happen. No. My prayer is that you would come with faith and you would believe that God can give this heart to you and that God can make us even more like his son, And even more like Jonathan, because, you know, the chances are that a lot of you here are being tested. You are being tested right now in your life. And I don't know what's going on in your life, and you may not realize it, but I want you to open yourself up to the fact that you might be be being tested right now. And some of you will pass the test with flying colors, and some of you maybe you will fail the test. See, Saul was being tested. You know, God had done some amazing things with Saul already. God had given him victories, but now there's another challenge. There's another test. What do you do when your army starts to shrink, Saul? What do you do when the the things in front of you are impossible? You know, uh, will you shrink back? You know, and what will you do in your situation? I don't know what they are, what the strongholds are, what the temptations are, what the testings are, but Saul failed the test. And some of you here, if you don't have your heart right and your spiritual antennas up and in high gear, you also will fail the test. But if, like Jonathan, we we come and we're like, Lord, here we are in the middle of this whole thing. Lord, I believe in you. I really do believe in you. I believe that the things of this world are passing away. I believe in you, God. And in this situation, whatever it is, we've got to have a heart like Jonathan. Now, Samuel had pronounced judgment on Saul. And like I shared with you last week, I don't think it was over, man. I don't think it was over. I don't think it was like, okay, there's no other chance. You know, maybe you're hearing words of judgment over your own life. I don't know. And I guess in one sense we we deserve it, but it's God's, I think, challenge to us whether or not you are going to take him seriously or not. For some of you here, God has been calling you to fast and to pray 
And you want to know something? I know that he has been calling you to fast and to pray for a long time. And you have been disobedient to almighty God. And you still eat all the time. You won't pray. You won't fast. You won't seek the Lord. You know, and God is just saying, will you repent or not? Because if not, judgment's coming. Because what I want, what God wants, is people who have a serious relationship with him. Not just a religion, not just going through the motions of whatever it is that you do. You think it's religious. You think, yeah, and maybe to a certain extent, yes. To a certain extent, yes, we are better off than the non-Christian. And yes, to a certain extent, maybe you are a little better off than your typical casual California carnal Christian. Yes, to a certain extent, maybe so. But when you really search your heart, you're not really what God wants you to be, what God really made you to be. And so that's why I love Jonathan now. You know, not to condemn you guys, not to beat you up, but to lift you up and to say, you know what? This can be you. We're going to see how God can use one man to save a whole nation. And imagine if that was all of us here. You know, one man, two men, all these men, all these people caught that vision. You know, what we see is that Saul went down, Samuel went down. And what had happened was the army of Israel, if you look back to chapter 13, we see in verse 2, the same chapter, that Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. And so, you know, he had an army of 3,000. Now, look back at chapter 13, verse 15. Now, he only has 600. And you're like, wait a minute, man, I thought armies were supposed to grow, You know, why is there now 600? Well, because the army is shrinking. Now, you got 600 soldiers, okay? Well, okay, that's not too bad. How many are we going up against? What do they have, 700? 750? No. Look at verse 5 of chapter 13. The Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. It says 30,000 chariots. More than likely, that's 3,000 chariots. It's still a lot. 6,000 cavalry, right, horsemen. And it says the people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. I mean, man, you got 600 guys. He's got 3,000 chariots, tanks. He's got 6,000 cavalry. And he has soldiers as the sands of the sea. And Saul is being tested. And we are being tested. What happens when we're facing these things that are just absolutely impossible with men? What do you do? Well, we read on here. It says in verse 16 that it got even worse that Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road to Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned to the road to Beth Horan. And another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. And so Saul's army was fading 
and the Philistine army was raiding. They sent out three companies, and apparently what they were doing was maneuvering to control the strategic roads in the land. It was a strategy of the enemy. And what we find is kind of like a chess game. But the problem is, you know, usually when you play chess, you know, like they go, then you go, they go, then you go, right? Israel wasn't going. Israel was paralyzed with fear. And what we find is they were not walking by faith. They were walking by sight. Saul was being tested. Things didn't look good. His army was shrinking. The enemy comes in and he controls this road, that road, and that road. If you were to look at a map, you would see that the enemy was deep into Israel territory. Right there near the Sea of Galilee, just uh, above the Sea of Galilee, a little bit to the west. That's deep into Israel's territory. Not only that, we read next in verse 19 that there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites, they would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. And so it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. And, and, and just, you know, real, real simple, the Holy Spirit here is painting a picture that from a human perspective, it's just impossible. It really is absolutely impossible. I mean, how do you win with 600 guys going against 3,000 chariots, 6,000 cavalry, and men as the sand of the sea? How do you win when they're controlling the roads? How do you win when your whole army, no one has a sword and a spear except for two guys? Everyone else, they have, you know, rakes and plows and, you know, maybe an axe here and there, but you know, what had happened was the Philistines had come in and they had just, man, devastated the land, controlled the land. They took out all the blacksmiths. They didn't allow any blacksmith to be there. And if you did need to sharpen your plows, they cost two-thirds of a shekel. I mean, it was just, it, even that probably didn't even happen because it was just too expensive. And so really what the Holy Spirit is doing here is he's painting a picture that says, you know what, this is it's just impossible. In verse 23, it says, And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. In other words, now we have this uh, section of the army that goes and begins to take further control. And so, you know, what about your life, you guys? And what about my life? You know, here's something that I want to ask you guys to do, okay? And because this is so practical, I would ask that you would spend some time with the Lord and I would ask that you just go before him and ask God, what are the strongholds that the devil has, the demons have in your life? You know, and maybe you're here today and there's just, you know, nothing, man, and you're just like, you know, victorious and everything and it's all cool. But I would venture to say that many of us here have areas of our life, have situations in our life, have things going on in our heart that 
the enemy pretty much has come in and um, and he's just captured strongholds. It could be relationships with people that need to be mended before you go anywhere. I don't know. It could be an attitude that you have. It could be pride. I don't know what it is, but that's between you and the Lord. Remember, if you go over to Second Corinthians... Remember this verse in chapter 10, 2 Corinthians, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, or they're not human, but they're mighty in God for pulling down what? Strongholds. See, there's strongholds. There's strategic fortresses in some of our lives. It could be your marriage. It could be with your children, your parenting. It could be, again, maybe you, you're eating. I mean, it, was just, it could be television. It could be Facebook. I mean, it could be, you know, your finances. I don't know what it is. It could be something going on physically, relationship. I don't know what it is, but there's strongholds. Not only that, those strongholds are, 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 are the foundation of the strongholds is a lie. It's a lie that Lucifer has spoken to you and you, we believe. That's what a stronghold is. You know, when the enemy comes in and he just, he just man, he just gets a vice grip with a lie. And so what ends up happening, the Lord says right here in verse 5, casting down those arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing everything into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. See, I just want to encourage you because I know that I what I did is I searched my heart and I started writing things down. Oh, here's a stronghold in my life. Here's a stronghold in my life. And that's what was going on with Israel. The enemy had come in deep into their territory and what ended up happening, man, they have this battle going on. Things didn't look good, you know, from a human perspective. But here it is. Whatever it is that you're facing, whatever the challenge is, whatever it is, with men it's impossible, but with God, what? All things are, are possible. I mean, if you and I would be willing today to say, God, I believe in you and I want to be a vessel of your power. And I believe in you by faith. And then what ends up happening is you unleash the power of God into that very situation. Up to this point, it's been like clogged. Because what, is the, what does James say? You know, if you ask for wisdom, ask God who gives to everyone liberally and without reproach, right? And he'll give you wisdom. But let not that man doubt. You see? And so what ends up happening here is Jonathan becomes an example to us because we know the Holy Spirit, he paints the picture of an impossible situation. And I don't know what your situation is. Maybe it's not just a negative situation. Maybe it's actually a positive situation where it's a mountain in front of you that will be a mountain of ministry that will catapult you forward to be used by God in a greater way. 
And again, with men it's impossible, but with God it's possible. You see, and you just have to have that sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. We really want to live a life that is not natural. We really want to live a life that as vessels of God is supernatural. A life that walks on water. Even though the outlook is bleak. You know, it's time for the uplook, right? Warren Wiersbe says. And when you go through those challenges and the enemy comes in and he has that opportunity, God allows it to happen, then it's actually another opportunity for God to show you his glory. But I just think that a lot of times what ends up happening is we just don't allow God to work. Remember, the Gospels talk about a time where you know, the, the Lord went to his hometown, Nazareth, and he, and, and, he, and he marveled. The modern translation says he tripped out. No, I'm just joking. It's just, he was just tripping out. What did he trip out on? Their unbelief. They really don't believe in me. And so the Bible says he could do no mighty works there. This is an example, because look what happens in verse 1. It says, now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistines garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And what was Saul doing? We read in verse two, Saul was kicking it, right? (laughs) Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. He had Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, who was wearing an ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. You see, what ended up happening was um, Jonathan, he just couldn't take it anymore. He couldn't take it anymore. You know, the enemy's over here doing his thing. He's gaining ground. He's got different roads with these different raiders. And now he's taking control of Micmash. And so Saul says, you know, I'm just going to kick it here. I've got it made under the shade of the pomegranate tree. And he's doing nothing. Nothing. He's sitting there doing nothing. And, so, and Jonathan just says, you know, I just can't take this anymore. And so what does he do? Like we read last week, he went, he picked a fight. He did it again. And this time we read right here that he takes this young man and, and he goes over to the Philistines garrison. And he didn't tell his father. Why didn't he tell his father? Because his father would have told him, no, don't go. He would have discouraged him, right? Because that was Saul's heart. You know, in one sense, Saul was content. You know, he had it made in the shade, kicking it under the pomegranate tree. You guys like pomegranates? He liked pomegranates too. And he was just kicking it there. And, you know, uh, there is a time to sit at the Lord's feet. But, you know, when the enemy is in God's land and you're just sitting there doing nothing, going about your own life, 
You know, I, I think that what we find is a picture here of the Lord just saying that's not the way it's supposed to be. Saul was not in a good place. He was here kicking it under the pomegranate tree. He was with this so-called priest who happened to be connected with the man by the name of Ichabod. Do you guys remember Ichabod? The glory has departed. Remember that? And that, that's Saul. Oh, I got my priest. I got my pomegranates. I got my 600 people. And God says, man, you don't got anything. Jonathan's the one that has it, man. We read in verse 4, between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. Now, more than likely, these were basically two cliffs. Kind of dangerous. The name of one was Boaz, Bozes, the name of the other Sena. And the front of one faced northward opposite Michmash and the other southward opposite Gibeon. So Jonathan didn't care. It was a little dangerous. He knew what God called him to do. It says, and then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. And so his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you, according to your heart. You see, do you guys see the contrast between Saul and Jonathan? Do you see that? The flesh and the spirit. You know, who, who we might end up being if we, if we just do nothing and who we might end up being, we have the potential to be if we would just believe again. You know, when you got saved, you believed in Jesus. You know, you believed you were a, saver in need of a, a sinner in need of a Savior. You got saved. You still need to believe in Jesus, you know. You need to believe in Him. And as you believe in Him, then it, it doesn't matter you know, here he says right here, let's go over. You know, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Why, here's the truth. Because nothing restrains the Lord from saving but by many or by few. You see, and that's the thing that you and I have to understand. That we need to walk by faith and not by sight. You know, we need to walk with the biblical convictions and not our emotions. You know, when you're in this situation, um, you know, maybe you're looking at it and, and with Saul's perspective, you're thinking that's crazy. You know, it's just crazy. It's spiritual suicide. It's physical suicide. You know, that he would go. Now, we're not talking with 600 men now. We're talking with two men. Two men. Let's go. Let's pick a fight, Right. And, and here's the thing, though. It was completely biblical. It wasn't presumptuous. It wasn't testing God. It was completely biblical for a number of reasons. Number one, Jonathan knew that God had given them the land. Let's look at a quick scripture in Genesis 15. Genesis chapter 15, notice it says in verse 18, On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river 
Euphrates. Okay, so and, and I could we could turn to like 37 scriptures that will tell you that this land belonged to Israel. You know, so it's not he's not being presumptuous here. Remember when the devil tested Jesus, tempted Jesus, told him to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. We're not talking about doing something unbiblical or anti-biblical here. I'm not telling you, hey, you know, go and pick up a snake and God's going to protect you. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being biblical. You know, and if you're in a situation and you're in the missionary environment and you get bit by a snake, God will protect you, right? And what we find right here is that as we go through life, we've got to know the scriptures. Jonathan knew that this land belonged to the Lord. If you go over to Joshua chapter 1, and look at verse 13 of Joshua chapter 1, it says, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land. Go over to Joshua chapter 18. Then Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord your God of your fathers has given you? And so, you know, some people might say, Well, that means, you know, doing something just crazy, you know? And and, and I and I want to encourage you that the world might think God's ways are crazy, but we know that they're not. And the only way that we're going to know his will is by knowing his word. And, you know, Jonathan knew that the land belonged to Israel. He also knew that numbers were not a factor. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 26, in verse 8, when God is speaking to them, if they walk in his statutes, he says in verse 8, five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. See, this is biblical. This is not, you know, silly, foolish, presumptuously testing God. This is just really rooted in the scriptures. There's an even neater verse over in Joshua chapter 23. It's Turn there. I'll race you. Joshua 23. Look at it says, you guys, in verse 10. One man of you shall chase a thousand. There it is. Why? For the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised. And that's all. It's not weird. It's just biblical. And so for us, how does it play out? You know, I mean, we're not in this situation. We're not a theocracy, you know, under God. And even the monarchy ordained by God, you know, even if we were to go to Afghanistan as a, as a soldier of the American army, it still wouldn't be the same setting. And so how does this apply to our life? Well, it affects us. It affects us every day. In all of the decisions that we make in so many ways. I mentioned to you earlier about fasting. Fasting. You know, why would you fast? And there might be some people who say, well, you shouldn't fast. It's not good for you. 
You know, and you know, here we are saying don't eat any food today, maybe even tomorrow or the next day. You know, because Jesus says it's time to fast. But your physician would disagree, and so would your body, right? <laughs> On the contrary, right? They say, no, you need three meals a day. But the great physician, Jesus, has a plan. And it's time to draw near. And it, it may sound weird, and people might look at it as weird, but if God, and I don't want to put my convictions on you, but if God is calling you to fast, don't listen to your body. Don't listen to your physician. Don't listen to your you know, neighbor who might be discouraging you from that. It's time to really do things that would be different in the world's eyes. You know, maybe you're here in the complexity and your anxiety. And, you know, God says, run to me and not to man. Run to me and not to medication. You know, not that medication is never right. We know that God can use medication sometimes. But this is what I've learned. And we need to know this principle as Christians that we must run to God first. First, we really need to have that in our heart. We need to run to God first and let him lead you through that whole process. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 12, talks about in the 39th year of the reign of Asa, he became diseased in his feet and the malady was severe, yet his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but he only sought the physicians. You know, it happens in everything in our life. I mean, it could be maybe you're here today and your finances are really, really tight and all you have is a widow's might. And, you know, you are there and God says to you, give it to me. Give that might to God that I might give you my might and I will bless you in your finances. And you're led by him and fed by him, trusting him. So contrary to what would typically take place, usually and naturally in the world that we live in, but God is testing you. You know, and I know some people, and again, you know, I really pray that you guys would know this is not motivated by me wanting you to give. It's it's really motivated by me wanting you to experience the blessings of God. And I've learned in life that you can't, outgive God. You guys remember the test uh, expressed over in Malachi? Let's turn there real quick. Malachi chapter 3. In verse 6, it says, I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. God says, return to me and I will return to you. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, well, in what way shall we return, you know? And a lot of times we don't connect finances. We don't connect giving to our relationship with God. But here we see the Lord connects them. He says, man, return to me. Will a man rob God? Think about that. Stick them up, (laughs) Right? Yeah, I don't think so, man. If you're going to rob anybody, you're going to go get an old lady, right? <laughs> or some guy who's smaller than you. I mean, you wouldn't rob God, right? But people are robbing God every day. You say, in what way have we robbed you? And God says, in tithes and offerings. You can't even give to me off the top. Why not? Oh, I do it. I do it, you know. No, the Lord says, tithes and offerings, 10% and then beyond. 10% is a good place to start. 
God says, you're cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. So God says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now. Here it is. This is a challenge. God says, just try me, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. I know, I know finances are hard right now. Economy is not doing good. You know, and maybe what ends up happening is you don't give to God. You don't give to God what belongs to God. And God says, man, give to me off the top. Give to me the fat of the firstborn. Give to me the best of the best and watch how I will bless your life and stop robbing God. But even though it doesn't make any sense, it's, it's you're being tested. And in, in many ways, it's almost like the same thing that, that Jonathan and Saul are going through because the the odds are against them if they were to do such a thing. But Jonathan says, I believe in God. And we pray, Lord, thank you for this food that you've given to me. But a lot of times when it all comes down to it, we, we really don't believe that really he is able to provide for us. You know, I don't know. I don't know where what's going on in your life. I don't know what the challenges will be. I mean, you know, uh, when when a wife, here it is, you're married and a wife becomes a homemaker. That's, that's taking God at his word. When they decide to quit their jobs and come and live at, and work and serve their husband and their children at home, that's, that's taking God at his word. Or, you know, when parents decide to have more children, not just two children or three, you know, because that works out in the budget, but... You really believe God's word that says children are a blessing from the Lord? That's, again, taking God at his, at his word. That's where things are different, you know, from the counsel of the world or when families maybe choose to homeschool their children. Basically, any time, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, where you are not conformed to this world, but you're transformed by the renewing of your minds. And you just go throughout the scriptures, man. I mean, there's a really neat verse. Go over to Psalm 109. And I know you guys know this. I don't think you do it, but I think you know it. No, this is a challenging verse. In verse 4, Psalm 109. In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to praise. And so there's someone, man, they get in your face. They tell you off, they accuse you, whatever it is. Naturally, what would we want to do? We'd want to suck them, right? We'd want to, you know, defend ourselves or, or whatever it is. And, and by faith, you just pray. And you give it to the Lord. See, I mean, you can go through the whole Bible and just boom, over and over again. It tells you the things that you can do when you decide to do things God's way. And when you believe the scriptures, when you really do believe the scriptures, back in 1 Samuel, what we see is that Jonathan really believed the scriptures. That's all. Nothing weird, nothing presumptuous on his part. He knew the Bible says this land belonged to Israel, and he knew that one could chase a thousand. It was all biblical. And so he decided to do things God's way. I love his armor bearer right here in verse 7. His armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart because I'm with you, right? It's so cool to have 
people with you. And so we read in verse 8 that Jonathan said, Okay, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, come to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. And so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. And then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you something. In other words, we're going to teach you a lesson, right? And so Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And so here we see Jonathan wasn't necessarily you know, setting a fleece as to whether or not he should do it. Now he's kind of asking the Lord, well, how should I do it? Should I go up or should I just show myself and, and they'll come down? Okay, Lord, we'll, we'll work it this way. If they say come up, then we know we'll go up. You've given us victory. If they say we'll go down, then you know we'll wait here and we'll fight them down here. Now the interesting thing is for them to say come up would be a disadvantage for the uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer because when you're on top, you've got higher ground, you've got you know greater control. And so Jonathan says, "Hey man, these guys gave us the right response. You know, so excited to fight for the Lord. Didn't want to sit under the pomegranate tree. He wanted to fight." Right. And, and, you know, coming back from Cambodia and just, you know, opening my eyes up, not just Cambodia, but just everywhere. I am so consumed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want my life, every beat of my heart to be all about that. I want to tell people about Jesus. I want to teach the Bible. I want to pray. I, I don't want to just kick back and have a comfortable American life. I want I don't want to waste my time anymore. I don't want to. I want my life to be consumed with Jesus Christ. I don't want to sit under the pomegranate tree at all. You know, I don't. And if I ever do take a vacation or if I ever do, you know, sleep or whatever it is, man, if I ever do, you know, you know, relax, it's only to recharge. It's only to focus on him more and to find out more of the battle plan. You know, and that's the heart that we have to have. Jonathan had that heart, you know, ready to fight, knowing that God was with him. You guys, God is with you. God is with you, right? He said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He said in Hebrews 13:5, be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is with you, right? Jonathan knew that. And so he says, okay, let's go. Let's fight. And I like what we read in verse 13. Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. And so Jonathan, you can picture him up there, hands and knees, going up, you know, knocks him down. You know, he leads the way. Beautiful man. The armor bearer comes behind him and he chops her head off. That's kind of what ends up happening, right? And he kills them. Beautiful armor bearer. And so we read in verse 14, that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. And so you're like, well, big deal. 20 men. Big 
deal, big stinking deal. But you got to understand that that then opened up the the corridors of heaven, man, so that it unleashed the power of God. That's what ends up happening in verse 15. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it was a very great trembling. Why did God send an earthquake at that time? Why? Because of Jonathan. Right? Jonathan, against all odds, took God at his word. And so it says, The watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin, they looked, and there was the multitude melting away. And they went here and there. You know, Saul's guys, the watchmen, are seeing the Philistine army crumble before him. And Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And so Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God. More than likely, this is the ephod. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. And it happened while Saul talked to the priest and the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand, never mind. I don't really need God's counsel now. I know there's a fight going on. And so it says, Saul and all the people who were with him assembled and they went to the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor and there was very great confusion. God had done such a work. God, uh, if you read other translations, it's interesting. They talk about he just put fear in the enemy's heart. I remember hearing a story by Pastor Chuck, and he's talking about a police officer. And I guess he had just started in, 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 his, in his job. And one day he was out there on the streets, and they got a call. And so they pursued this vehicle. They pulled him over and outstepped three big, buff, bad boys, man. Really bad, right? And so here's this rookie police officer. And uh, from what I understand, it was him and, and, and he had a partner with him. And they were, they were going to arrest these guys. But they're three big, bad, buff guys, right? And so um, what ends up happening is they, they, they start a fight. A fight breaks out. And Pastor Chuck mentioned this story, and to me, I've always just appreciated it because I see it in biblical times. They just started scuffling, and just all these things started happening, right? And I don't know all the details, but from what I remember, they were kind of, you know, going through all these things. And what ended up happening is in the middle of this scuffle, in the middle of this fight, these three guys started fighting each other. They started fighting each other. Next thing you know, they're all thrashed. Their backup arrives, and they're able to handcuff them and take them away. And, and after the scuffle was all done, these police officers are Christians. They're obviously praying through this whole process. You know, they ask them, well, man, did you get hit? No, I didn't even get hit. I didn't know. None of them connected. There was no damage upon these disciples of God. And it was kind of like a, a modern-day story of what really God can do. You know, one of the things I've been seeing more and more lately is the enemy is real. The enemy is real, you guys. And we need the Lord. And we need the Lord to come in and to do things like this. And, you know, to have them fight not against us but against each other. God gives the victory because Saul sees all these things happening. It was true. It says in verse 21, even more, 
the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, in other words, they were traitors, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country. They also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. And so the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted now 15 miles to Beth-Avon. And we'll pick it up here next week, Lord willing. But, you know, you see what God can do through one man who really believes. And my prayer, you guys, is that there would be no, no doubters here today, you know, that we would really believe because if we could gather together and like Jonathan, just simply take God at his word, man, what can God do in and through our life? You know, here we see in the end that guys who had, you know, gone over to the Philistine army, they came back. Guys that were hiding in caves and dens and crevices and cracks, they came out of hiding. And it's kind of like Jonathan, you know, rallied the troops, man. They saw a leader and they saw the victory and they joined in. Now, of course, it would have been better to be a Jonathan to begin with. But thank God that the Lord will use our lives to encourage others who are in different situations. Let me give you guys a few things to write down before we leave today. Number one, I want to pray that you guys would identify strongholds in your life. A stronghold that the enemy has in your life. Like I said, it could be a relationship. I don't know what it is, but areas of your life. It could be an addiction. It could be things that are like, you know, in and of themselves are not sin, but because you're doing it in place of what God wants you to do and you can't overcome, then they are. Maybe it's fasting. I don't know what it is. But I want you to identify strongholds in your life. Number two, I would ask that you search the scriptures. Search the scriptures for those things that are applicable to those strongholds. Strongholds and then scriptures. Now, you might know them. You might pray, God, give me a passage that pertains to this situation. You might hear a Bible study or you might have a, ask a friend. But, Lord, give me your word. Then number three, take steps. Apply the scriptures. Take steps of faith. Jonathan, for Jonathan, it was, hey, let's go fight. I'm not going to kick it under the pomegranate tree, man. <laughs> And so number one, strongholds, number two, scriptures, number three, steps, and then number four, what? Salvation. Watch God save. And then I want to give you three things to beware of. Beware of, number one, of being one who sells out. Beware of being one who sells out. And for that, tonight, I want to say, if you're a non-believer, and, I, and I'm hoping and I'm praying that we're all believers. But if you don't have Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, you can go to church a million times. You won't go to heaven. Unless you fully surrender your life to Christ. And, you know, you have turned from your sins and trust in Jesus. Then you're in the enemy's camp. And today I pray, if there is anyone here who is on the enemy's side, that you would make a decision to come to Jesus' side, right? So beware of being one who sells out. 
fighting God and his people. Number two, beware of being one who hides out. Now, these are individuals who were in the cracks and crevices and the caves and the dens, and they were not in fellowship. They were out there. And so maybe you're here today and you don't go to church on a consistent basis and you're out there hiding in the caves and the dens and the cracks and the crevices. Beware of being an individual like that. You need to be plugged into a fellowship, a good church that loves you and teaches you God's word. Because the first people are the enemies of God. They're fighting God. The second people, maybe they know the Lord, but they're running from God. They're running from God. You need to be blastado right in the middle of a good congregation. And number three, be wearing of of being a person who sits out. Don't be one who sells out. Don't be one who hides out. And don't be one who sits out. Now for this, these are the individuals that were part of Saul's army. And they were there. They were with him. They were the 600 men. They were in the fellowship, so to speak. But in all reality, they were doing nothing. Nothing. In all reality, they were there. Yeah. Impressive. I'm part of, you know, Saul's army. You know, yeah, there used to be 3,000, but now there's only 600. And I'm part of the 600. I'm one of the guys. Yeah, but you're not doing anything. You're just sitting there. Jonathan is an example for us. And he didn't go and get crazy or anything, man. I believe he had a relationship with the Lord. He was very biblical. And God just, he did an amazing work, you guys. My prayer is that we would really be so careful living in this country with all the comforts that we have, all the amenities, all the things that we believe we're entitled to, and just really missing out on this relationship with God where God would work in us and work through us, where we would know the Lord and we would make him known. And so I pray that we would just catch the vision and learn from Jonathan and from Saul. And Lord, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. That just teaches us, Father, uh, things that I believe are very applicable. I know in my own life, Father, you've shown me strong.